you are worthy, our Lord Jesus, worthy to have all authority and power and glory. For you are slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and made them a priest, a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Watch over us now that we might know your will, soften our hearts to take in your word and change us, transform us that we might live in a way that glorifies you. Amen. Please have a seat. And do excuse my Australian accent. I'm happy to uh, do some translating if you put your hand up. That's fine. Um, la. Um. And some sermons are you know, very activist sermons. You must go and do this. This sermon is not like that. This sermon is much more reflective, much more inviting you to change from the inside out, from the mind to the actions. And we'll be looking at Psalm 72 and reflecting on that psalm. So I do invite you to have that psalm open rather than just, you know, whatever the pastor says must be right. Uh, it's often not the case with me. <laughs> My family can attest to that. What we're invited to do in Psalm 10, 72 is to imagine. Imagine that every person in every nation on earth, every leader in every parliament or palace, bends their knee and is accountable to one person, one ruler, Donald Trump, <laughs> not him, even him, Xi Jinping, Salman bin Abdulaziz Al Saud, Anthony Albanese, you may never have heard of the Australian Prime Minister, but that's the Australian Prime Minister, you're forgiven. Rishi Sunak, Joe Biden, Justin Trudeau, Benjamin Netanyahu, Andrew Chia. <laughs> the psalm uh, invites us to imagine a future where every act, every act of bias or unfairness is dealt with perfectly from the smallest to the greatest where the one thing that we can't seem to get right, relationships, are put right, where the poor and the needy have instant redress, where oppression is crushed and replaced with a positive sense of joy in each other and in our maker, where every relationship and person is filled with blessing and creation itself responds in abundance, and plenty as righteousness flows from the tops of the mountains. And you may say, I'm a dreamer. But that's what Psalm 72 invites us to do. Actually, it's very different to that John Lennon song, isn't it? You know, imagine. When there's a tragedy, at least in Australia, over the last 20 or 30 years or so, it always seems that there's one of two songs that gets played, either Amazing Grace or John Lennon's Imagine. In New Zealand, remember that mosque massacre in 2019? Terrible time. Everywhere it seemed that this song was playing. Imagine. But I don't need to tell you that just imagining isn't going to be enough. You, you probably know that John Lennon himself was a physically violent person. According to his own words released just weeks before he died, he said, I was a hitter. 
He, he was violent towards his women. He mocked people with disabilities. By his own words, his own admission. His son Julian called him a complete hypocrite. But even hypocrites can have beautiful longings. The only way to Lennon's longing in his song, that longing becoming reality, was, was, was if we got rid of God, of course. Remember that, that song? Imagine there's no heaven. The problem for him is faith in God. If we get rid of God and work really hard together, then all the people would be living in peace. Remember the words of the song? Well, Psalm 72 gives us a different view. And it's wider and deeper and longer than the ex-Beatles roadmap. And it's more profound and it surpasses just a brotherhood without wars for it's a peace built on a perfect kingdom, a perfect righteousness where the creation itself is healed and joins as a kind of a wild kingdom where the blessings of God flow down from the mountains, not just for today and tomorrow but for eternity. And not just for some, but for all in every nation until the earth is filled with the glory of God. And the crazy thing about this psalm, the wonderful thing, is that the hope all depends on one person, one human. That's where the faith is all resting. And he comes to us in verse 1 and he's called the king, the royal son. Can you see it in front of you? Psalm 72. Of Solomon, give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. How can these words from thousands of years ago offer us any reality today, though? Well, let us just step back for a moment. You might have read, uh, realized that as we read that psalm together, the final line was a bit of a shock. Remember what it said? The prayers of David, the, sons of the son of Jesse, are ended. Now, the book of Psalms is collected in five books. And Psalm 73 begins the third book. This psalm is the end of the second book. And books one and two are focused on King David, king in Israel about 1000 BC. And you can see in verse 1 of 72, the title of Solomon. It's either from or to or about Solomon, from David. They were set apart by God for a special role, anointed to be kings. And the Hebrew word for anointed is, you probably know, Messiah or a cognate of Messiah. And the New Testament word, of course, is Christ. That's the Greek word, means the same as Messiah, anointed one. And I don't know how you felt as, it was, as we were reading it before. But I want to assure you, it is not a narcissistic delusion. It is a wild hope. And an invitation into a wild hope based on this promise that God made way back in the beginning of the Bible to bless all nations through the nation of Israel, through his people. And what God promised to King David was that he was going to give him one descendant who would sit on his throne, who would rule over the world forever. And this is very important because all through the Bible, God promises he's going to deal with all evil and make an end to it. I mean, we, we read about it, we, 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 we sang it before, but, but the key about this, ever since the King David, the way God is going to do it is through one 
person, one Messiah. And there's one more thing to notice. If you read the accounts of David's rule, it's kind of disappointing. Because he's sinful and he dies. And his son Solomon starts off with so much promise. But you know what he does in the end of his, in the, in the end of his rule? He, he imposes forced labour on Israel so he can build his big building project. And it, tens and thousands are conscripted. And then massive taxes are laid on the people to fund the projects, right? It's all about the money. And, and at one stage, he's in need of a special capital injection. You know, you know what he does? He gives away 20 cities on the border of Israel to a foreign king. You know, God's land. He sells it. And he takes hundreds of wives from foreign nations. Exactly what God said for the kings not to do. And finally, God says, I'm going to tear the kingdom away from you. And that's what God does. The people rise up when he dies and the kingdom split. But you know, the promises of God remained. And, and this contradiction between our hope for righteousness and our hope for justice and our hope in God and what we experience in life and in our leaders... That's where this psalm becomes so important. And please notice there is no cynicism. Very difficult for Aussies to come to grips with that because we're so cynical. There's no despair. There's no make-believe. It is a prayer to God based on the promises of God and it resonates deep. Deep in our hearts. And the psalm itself actually is very simple. Come and have a look at verse 1 again with me. Everything comes from verse 1. The main idea is righteousness, justice. There's only one reference to God in the psalm and it's there in verse 1. And the entire psalm is dominated by prayer to God for the royal son. Give the royal son your justice, O God. Your righteousness to the royal son. It's not a prayer that the king will be just and righteous. It's a prayer that God will give him his justice which is completely impossible it's beyond any human isn't it it doesn't matter how brilliant or how gifted or how educated how ethical someone might be if he's a human being he won't be able to do perfect justice he won't be able to see into people's hearts and know their motivations, the secret things. He's not going to have the power to truly deal with what is truly wrong. So right from verse 1, we're already asking way too much of one human being. For God to answer this prayer, we're going to need a human who will share divine privileges and divine power but since he's the royal son, he must be a real human, part of the lineage of David and Solomon. But if he's going to have the perfect purity and righteousness of God, and if he's going to dispense perfect justice and deliverance from evil, he's going to have to be a God-man. Isn't that amazing? Now, we use the term righteousness today quite negatively, I think. Someone, we say is righteous. We kind of mean they're kind of a moralizer. 
and they kind of look down on others. And it's a pity because justice, righteousness is the thing we look for above everything else, I reckon. And it's a pity because in the Old Testament, righteousness is much more than just doing the right thing. It's a friendship word. It reflects the connection and relationship between God and humans. It's personal. It's not merely transactional. And ethics and law are a part of it, but a small part. What's much bigger is relating to each other in concrete ways. Righteousness is what we do not have and is why we mess up our relationships. It's why we hurt the ones we love. But God's ways are always righteous. His ways are perfect, which means his ways and ways of relating give life and hope and a future, others. And, you know, later in the Old Testament, God is going to say, I delight in righteousness. And later on in Jeremiah, he's going to say, you can actually call my name righteousness. And justice is when God acts in righteousness. That is, he puts things right between himself and others, and he puts things right between people who have wronged each other. So the decision to right wrongs and reward rights is the active side of this righteousness. And look, the, the reason I'm going on about this, and you might be thinking, why is he going on about that? The reason I'm going on about this is because it's very under, important to understand this about the God of the Bible even before we get to things like kindness or compassion because otherwise compassion is going to be untethered from any right or good. And when you've got compassion with no compass, it's kind of like those gangster figures, right? The mafia figures who are very kind to their animals but shoot people without a second thought. Dalai Lama got into trouble a few years ago, not not the time that he kissed that child on the lips, but for talking about Hitler's compassion. Do you remember that? See, when kindness and compassion are tethered to what is righteous and just, and when the power of God combines them in a God-man, now there's hope. And uh, as I say, everything flows out of this first verse, this first prayer and in the psalm, there are three effects, and that's really what I want to talk about today, three effects that flow out of the king's son being filled with the righteousness of God. Goodness and greatness and glory, so first goodness. When the king rules with God's righteousness, the effect is peace, or in Hebrew, shalom. Now, I don't mean the absence of of nastiness and suffering and evil. That's not what the Bible means by shalom. Shalom means a positive state of affairs where everything in all of creation is in right relationship. In right relationship with God, in right relationship with everything else in creation, in right relationship internally. So you have a look at verse 3. Here's the scope let the mountains bear prosperity, shalom actually is the word there, for the people and the hills in righteousness. The mountains are the furthest distance, the tallest object that you can see. And the point is as far as you can see and as far as you can go, shalom will be there. There will be more than enough to go around. Verse 6 May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, 
like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish and, and peace, shalom, abound till the moon be no more. This, this idea of human flourishing when all things are right is so attractive. In, in the Hebrew it means expanding and, and, and growing in happiness. So the righteousness and justice that the royal son does creates the conditions where all that's good and fresh, where all humanity can grow. And, you know, this is so much better than the Western idea that you just need more education, <laughs> then the future will be secure. Or like in Australia, as long as you've got good coffee, cold beer and a beach close by, you'll be fine. This is talking about... A state of affairs where a person blooms in relationship with God and with everything that God has made. And that vision sets the course of life here. But it's not going to happen easily or automatically or overnight because there's deep resistance to the righteousness and justice of God. So the king will have to deal with evil in two ways, positively and negatively. Firstly, positively, the son's got a special connection with those who belong to him, particularly the victims of abuse and injustice. Verse 2, may he judge your people with righteousness, your poor with justice. And the word for poor here means those exploited or pushed down. And everyone who knows this king has immediate access to him. Even when he's bringing all kings around the world to bow down to him, everyone of his people has instant access and entrance with this king. Look at verse 12. He delivers the needy when he calls, not when he gets around to it, not when he reaches the top of his to-do list. The poor and him who has no helper. Verse 13. He has pity on the weak. Literally, he is refuge. And the needy and saves the lives of the needy. Verse 14, from oppression and violence he redeems their life. And precious is their blood in his sight. Because those who belong to the king in this world are not excluded from suffering. Some will suffer terribly. Some will be killed. And even when they're killed he'll redeem their lives through death. Because precious is their blood in his sight. We are more valuable to him than we can say. And you know, negatively, he will also bring righteousness. See, you you cannot defend the cause of the poor or the weak or the needy without crushing those who would oppress them. And there's no doubt that God's king will exercise judgment. Because putting things right means putting everything right. And things won't be right until he's destroyed what's wrong. The whole idea that, you know, (laughs) a God of love is not a God who judges. He couldn't possibly judge if he's a God of love. That's not love. That's indifference. The opposite of love is not anger. The opposite of love is not caring. It's only when you love someone that what they do matters to you. And so it is with God. Shalom and peace will only come through his judgment. And here's the promise that the royal son will bring all the goodness and all the flourishing and all the peace and all the shalom of God. 
by establishing the justice and righteousness of God. It's a good vision. The first effect of the royal son having the righteousness of God is goodness. The second is greatness. See, the sheer extent of the son's influence is staggering. When you think through the psalm, this is not a local ruler who, despite their own self-inflated self-importance, is irrelevant on the wider stage. Verse 7, In his days may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. The moon rose and set before you were born. And if, if Jesus doesn't return, it'll keep rising and setting long after you're gone. You see the extent? Verse 17, may his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. But not just in time and space. The, the vision that's cast here, his rule should be over all people. This is getting personal. Verse 11, may all kings fall down before him, all nations serve him. In verses 8 to 10, all, all the locations uh, there is all the known world. And the prayer is that the royal son would have dominion over all the known world. And, and it takes, you know, the worship that should belong to God alone, the maker of all things. And it prays now that it will be directed to the royal son. Isn't that amazing? When you look at this psalm. 3,000 years ago. But, you know, since the days of the big European wars and especially since Hitler's big dreams of the Third Reich, the Third Dominion, people have been rightly suspicious of grand claims to power. I mean, Hitler dreamed big, didn't he? One humanity, one new humanity, ruled by a master race, the Ubermann, Millions had to be exterminated for that to happen. Millions of lives were damaged. And what's worse is that Hitler spoke as if what he was doing was the inevitable will of God. But you see, the righteousness and justice of God were completely absent in his plans. When the righteousness and kindness and love of God appeared in his son... His son's life is marked by humility and saving others at the cost of his life, not taking other lives to enhance his own power. And that is why we can trust him alone to rule over all earth, all peoples. You know, we know from the New Testament that there will come a day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and also that not every creature will do that willingly. Satan will bow with rage and hatred, but he will no longer be able to deny the rule of Jesus and that his justice is right. But here's the amazing thing in the prayer of this psalm. It's that more of those who deny Jesus' rule and deny his goodness or who are careless about things in the spiritual world would come to adore him with all their hearts and call him blessed. I mean, read it again. I've said this is a reflective opportunity, this sermon. The psalm's not a call for vengeance, is it? It's not a call for vengeance on God's enemies. It's a plea that the hearts of those who oppose 
The king and God will turn back. Do you see verse 11? May all kings bow down before him. Or verse 17, more remarkably, may all nations call him blessed. It's an invitation, isn't it? To participate in what the king's doing. As the son executes God's righteousness and justice, God calls on all those outside the kingdom to enter in. At church back at home in Sydney, we've been looking at Matthew's gospel. And it's there again and again and again in Matthew's gospel. Who were the first responders to Jesus? Come on, it's just been Christmas. Who were the first responders? The Magi, right? Outsiders. And what's the first miracle that Jesus does in Matthew's gospel? Healing the leper. Jesus stretches out his hand and touches the untouchable, the outsider. That's the kind of kingdom that Jesus brings. And the grace of the kingdom is even available for those who are planning to kill him. Father, have mercy. Talk about outsiders. So the righteousness of the king is not about punishing enemies. If you're not seeking that Jesus, then it will only lead to frustration and futility. And you know, this is a big psalm. And I want to encourage you, especially if you're feeling oppression and injustice, not to stop praying big prayers. There's been great injustice in the history of the world not far from where we stand don't let it stop you praying big prayers this psalm invites us to use our imagination to pray for the biggest kinds of things and just quickly thirdly glory goodness greatness glory verse 19 blessed be his glorious name forever may the whole earth be filled with his glory amen and amen that's a lot of glory right and, you know, since we live on this side of the coming of Jesus, we know we don't just have to imagine a world living life in peace because the way that God's begun to fulfil this prayer is more radical and more amazing than David could have imagined, that God did not do it by a naked show of power. He, he, he instead lowered himself. The son was crucified Naked, on a cross, as one of us, to do what we could never do for ourselves. The divine Son, fully God, co-equal with the Father and the Spirit, entered our world by being born in blood and water. Taking to himself human flesh while continuing to be divine, he became the God-man. And a thousand years after this psalm was written on a quiet night in Bethlehem, can you hear it? That first cry, a baby was born to a virgin. He'd been conceived in her womb by the Holy Spirit. He took his human nature from his mother. Can you hear him cry? And can you hear the angel say to Mary, before his birth, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. Can you hear the cry 
of the baby. And to the baby came the kings, the outsiders, with gold and frankincense and myrrh, and they bowed before the baby. And when he was baptised, the heavens opened, and the Spirit of God came on him and said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, the God-man, the divine Son, come to do justice. And he came and he preached the kingdom of Shalom, the kingdom of peace with God and with others. And people came to him and he delivered the needy and he delivered the poor, but it's in his death that his glory is most clearly seen. On the last night before he was betrayed, he prays, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And in his death, he brings all things back into their right relationship. He makes shalom through the blood of his cross and he reveals what it's going to take to accomplish God's righteousness and God's justice. And most wonderfully, in a way that we cannot fully understand, he offers to us, um, to me, to you, with our track records, <laughs> his own righteousness in exchange for our unrighteousness. For our sake, he made him to be ha who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And you know, every time we share that news, that good news, you know, there God is revealing to us his righteousness and his justice again and again to strengthen our faith. And he was raised from the dead. Death couldn't hold him. He's ascended into heaven and sitting at the right hand of the Father, the one on high, and has begun to rule and you will meet him. You know, I hate cues personally. Australians queue in a particularly different way, I've noticed, to Malaysians. Um, it's much more orderly. And I really struggle with queues here in Malaysia. You know, I'm not talking about the queues at MRT, LRT, football or McDonald's. You, you know, you can see those queues, but every one of us is actually in another queue. Queue you can't see. And when you get to the front of that queue, you know what you're going to do? You're going to meet this one, the royal son. He will judge the living and the dead and every creature will bow before him. And he will remake creation and righteousness will flow from the mountaintops and fill the earth with glory. And until that day, God's putting all things under the feet of Jesus Christ. Friends, our hope for this world is not that we can find the political ruler with clean hands, the wise politician. It's not for a supercharged UN where resources will go out evenly across the world. Our hopes are pinned on this one man, God-man, Jesus Christ. And when we look at him with all the eyes of faith, we see all the glory of God and there's nothing to compare with him. And I invite you, as we finish, to not leave this psalm behind as you walk or drive, or travel home today, don't leave this psalm behind. As you lie on your bed tonight, don't leave this psalm behind. And the vision of the goodness, and the greatness, and the glory of the royal son.